Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Well, uh, man, I'm very excited that you made it here um, today. Uh, how many of you were here last week? How many of you? Okay, many of you were here last week. Last week we talked about uh, hospitality, and the church exists around a table and as a family, and we kind of fleshed out the meaning of hospitality. And so uh, this week we're going to be talking about generosity. And uh, over the next few weeks we're going to be talking about different aspects of what the church does. So what are, what are basic, properly basic uh, practices that the church does? So today we're going to be talking about generosity. So if you brought your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts 2, beginning in verse 42. And then I'm going to go to, after I read this passage, I'm going to go to Matthew chapter uh, 6 and read just a few verses. So this is Dr. Luke. He writes in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship into the breaking of bread and the prayers. In verse 43, and awe, everyone say awe. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. How many of you want more wonder in your life? Right, more awe? It's powerful. I'm gonna, I, I think there's a link between awe and generosity, which I hope to make at the end of this, this little brief talk here today. Verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad. How many want more joy in your heart and generous Hearts. I love that. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. Do you turn to Matthew? If you brought your Bibles, you don't have to, but Matthew chapter 6. I believe we're going to start in verse 19, I think it is. I did it. Verse 19. So this is Jesus. This is this famous Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to his disciples, among others. And he writes in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And he continues, verse 21, Pastor Ken mentioned it a couple of minutes ago, for where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. Verse 22, the eye is a lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve, verse 24, two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'd be devoted to the one and despise the other. Here we have this famous Jesus aphorism. You cannot serve God and money. Or the better translation would be mammon. And everyone said amen. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your grace here today. 
Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're, you're already speaking to your sons and daughters. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you would help me to, to talk about generosity. Lord, we thank you that you've been so generous to us. And Lord, I just thank you that you would give us fresh insight into who you are and your character. And Lord, we just love you so much. And Lord, we just thank you again that your favorite team in the world is the Dallas Cowboys. And everyone said, amen. Um, how many of you uh, like Roaring Springs? Okay, come on. Come on. No, come on. Let me see those hands. Okay, about half of you. How many of you like water? Okay, you like water. You like Roaring Springs. Um, or maybe that's, those are two different things. Uh, a while ago, a couple weeks ago, uh, Kel and, and I decided to take the kids with uh, one of our favorite families in the world, Scott and Willow and their kids. Scott left me. He abandoned me. He's a smart man. And we went to Roaring Springs. And uh, Roaring Springs is, um, how do I say this gently? It's one of my least favorite places to go. Uh, my family, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy in our family. My, my wife, we call her like Summer Kel. Like Summer Kel is the best, she's the best version of herself. She's always the best version of herself. Uh, I should qualify. Uh, but she just loves in the summer, she loves like taking the family to, to parks and pools and she just loves water. She comes alive. So my family, uh, my wife and my kids, they love, everyone say love. They love uh, Roaring Springs. Um, however, I do not love Roaring Springs. So as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I, man, I, we, we went, and it was about six. It was like family night. So, you know, we, we spent, uh, you know, a reasonable amount of money. I don't even kind of know. Um, but I remember we, we walked in. It was about six o'clock, and um, I don't know what it was. I just turned into like a complainer. Do we have any complainers here? I just, I was a little bit tired, but I was glad that uh, we were with um, one of our favorite families, so it's easy to spend time with them, but Roaring Springs just brings the worst out of me, so I remember I was really, really cold. I don't know what it is about water, I just get cold really easy, so we got in the Lazy River, and so I was with uh, my wife in the Lazy River, and there's these two little, two little 11-year-old boys, they jumped in right next to me, started splashing me, and I got, I, I can't lie, I fantasized about taking their head and dunking them under the water. So I was, I was grumpy. Everyone say grumpy. I'm grumpy. I'm like, why did we spend um, all this money um, to watch our kids um, play in water and get cold and get sunburned? We're all going to get staph infection in the eye and there's bacteria everywhere. And I don't know what it is, but you just go and there's bodies everywhere, right? It's just like naked bodies, bodies. I don't know. It's just bodies and bodies and bodies. And I'm just like, I don't know if I... If I really like this, the food's all right. It's just, it's not uh, one of my favorite places um, to be. Uh, but for my wife, she just loves it. She doesn't care about staph infection. She doesn't care about bacteria. Quincy doesn't care about flying off the, the inner tube and losing his life. Um, why? Because it, it hit me. I had an epiphany. It's because they love Roaring Springs. And I realized that if I loved Roaring Springs, I wouldn't be a complainer. The issue for me was love. Turn your neighbor and say love. Come on, turn your neighbor and say love. Uh, 
if I really loved Roaring Springs and my biggest complaint was, hey, babe, why, why, why are we spending so much money on going to a water park and we're all going to leave sunburned and grumpy, right? And I realized uh, that if I really loved Roaring Springs, uh, it wouldn't matter how much we spent to get there. In fact, if I really loved Roaring Springs, I would have a laissez-faire, kind of a laissez-faire attitude when it comes to spending. I basically think, okay, you can spend whatever you want on hot dogs, and uh, I don't care how much it, it takes to get into the park, and um, I, I just would be, have more casual approach because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Um, one pastor, he, he wrote this, said this, spoke this. He says, wherever your heart most treasures will be where your most or where your money goes most effortlessly. Wherever your heart most treasures, whatever your heart most treasures, will be where your money goes most effortlessly. It's funny. In Jesus, this is what he's talking about. And you see this in Acts chapter 2. You have the signs of a healthy church in uh, the passage that we read in Acts 2. And they're giving generously. Uh, the early church was shaped by generosity and hospitality. And they lived around the table. And they considered themselves as, as family members. Uh, generosity was the sine qua non of their, their, their lived experience. Uh, they lived to be generous. And um, I'm realizing more and more when it comes to generosity, generosity fundamentally is about love. It's all about where your heart is. So wherever your heart is, you'll have to be, and I want you to listen to me, wherever your heart is, you'll have to be careful not to spend too much. It's the Roaring Springs. I don't think it's like working that illustration. Maybe a bad example. Like if you go to, let's say you're a Cowboy fan and they're playing the Seahawks game three uh, of the season and you go and you, you love football, it's not going to be hard to spend money um, on the Cowboys game, right? And getting hot dogs and, uh, and spending time with your family and friends. And it's going to be easy. It's going to be effortless, See, why do, we, why do we open up our homes? Why did the early church open up their homes? Why did the early church practice hospitality? Why did the church care for their enemies and love and serve their neighbors and the disadvantaged and the misfits? And why, why did they give their lives uh, for the sake of people in the ancient world, mo most of whom did not care about the story of Jesus? I think the answer you can find is their love for Jesus shaped their passion for generosity. So we come to Matthew chapter 6, and we read in verse 19, I think what Jesus is saying, and I want you to hear me. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. You don't have to. Jesus is saying is there's one way to know. How many of you want to know if your heart's in the right place? Okay. If you want to know if your heart is in the right place, um, you have to See how when, when, when it comes to generosity talks or when the Holy Spirit's speaking to you about giving something, can you give in response or in obedience to the Holy Spirit? Maybe it's on Tuesday and maybe the Holy Spirit puts someone on your heart. Um, can you give in response to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you sacrificially and with joy? I think this is what Jesus is saying. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Um, I think, how many of you want to know the truth? 
right? I think we all want to know the truth. I think we want to know where we stand with God. Uh, We all know that we're here because of the grace of God. I'm going to talk a little bit about that at the end of this message. But I think we want to know the truth. And one way uh, for knowing the truth is to obviously read your Bible. We have a high view of Scripture, and we believe in God's Word, and I believe God speaks to us, and we believe God's Word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Come on. We believe God's Word is powerful, and God can change you in one moment when you're reading uh, scripture, and I would, I'm an advocate for reading your Bible every single day if you can. Can I get an amen, church? So we believe that. We have a high view of scripture, and we believe that reading scripture is, is a part of the, the fabric of our spiritual practice. But if you really want to know the truth in light of what Jesus uh, said in the passage in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, where your treasure is there, your heart will be, um, you must know the flow of money and resources. In your life, if you want to know the truth, you must know the flow of money and resources through your life. In fact, if you want to get a clear picture of who you are, your priorities, um, what you're about, what you really stinking care about, take a look at your spending. I, I just knew I want to get any good amens. It's like, ouch. Take a look at your online banking statements. Isn't it funny how you take a look at like your online ledger and you're like, I didn't know I spent that much on that, right? It's funny how um, you can get clarity about what you really treasure as you look at what you give or spend, etc. The way money flows, and this is what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 6. Again, this is tethered to generosity. The way money flows to you and through you to others isn't unrelated to your life. In fact, it says everything about you. Is anyone depressed here this morning? Okay. Jesus gives us the reason why this is the case. Uh, the reason why money and, and resources and time and energy flowing through us is, is part of the warp and woof of, of our life. Is He says in verse 22 and 23... Um, that if your eye is healthy, everyone say healthy. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be filled with light. If your eye is evil, he called it the evil-eyed man. If you want to go to the original language, the evil-eyed man um, is someone who is filled with darkness. What is Jesus saying? Many people get this this text confused. They're like, well, it kind of means that if you have uh, a right focus on God, which I, I agree, but this is not exactly what Jesus is saying. If you get your right focus on God, everything else in your life will get straightened out. And that's a secondary meaning. The primary meaning of what Jesus is saying when he refers to healthy eyes and evil eye is that the healthy eye in the rabbinic world or the wisdom lit world of Jesus's day always referred to generous, um, a generous life or generosity. The healthy eye is a generous person. The evil-eyed man is a stingy person. So the one who is generous will be filled with grace. Don't shout me down. Will be filled with light in God's presence. The one who lives an open-hearted life and allows the flow of resources and time and energy, sometimes money, sometimes stuff that God gifts you, when they allow their lives to be more flow, everyone say flow, for the sake of others, 
their life is filled with God's blessing. In fact, I think what Jesus is saying is that true wealth is found, and this is like the American vision of wealth, uh, wealth or well-being, true wealth is found, according to many Americans, in uh, owning something, right? Owning stock, collecting stuff, gathering up, whatever, accumulating possessions. Unfortunately, we all know possessions possess us. Uh, but true wealth, what Jesus is telling us, is not found in owning anything. And there's nothing wrong with owning stuff. It's not, there's nothing wrong with having money or a house. That's not what we're saying. But true wealth is not found in possession. True wealth is found in the generous flow of resources through us. That's where you will find, this is the words of Jesus, that is where you will find True joy. Why is that, Chris? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, verse 24, um, there's only one master. You can't serve two masters. In fact, you can either serve God or you can serve um, money or mammon. In fact, this whole text or that whole verse is all about priorities. Let me say something really quick about priorities. I, I, you just can't have the peace of God without God's priorities. In other words, there's a lot of people, I'm sure no one in, in here, um, probably at all the other churches, right? But I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that want the peace of God without the God of peace. We want the peace of God without prioritizing the presence of God. Am I getting too cliche on us? Is that okay that we talk like that? Um, if you want God's peace, if you want to enter into God's peace and well-being and subjective well-being or human flourishing or what Americans call happiness, whatever, um, you, you have to prioritize the presence of God. In fact, the, Matthew chapter 6, the whole chapter is all about Jesus prioritizing the presence of his Father in his life. And when he prioritizes the presence of his Father, everything else falls into place. And this is the teaching of Jesus. Uh, in fact, what we find, um, one scholar says that Jesus is the happiest person alive. Isn't it funny how we think Jesus is like, man, he's, he's serious? Right? He tells his disciples, man, if you're going to follow me, you got to pick up your cross and you got you to kill yourself, right? Or you got to deny yourself. We know that Jesus uh, was crucified. We know that uh, Jesus was acquainted with grief and sorrow. But here's the thing. Um, that was um, an exception. Jesus went all the way to the cross to defeat the power of death and darkness. And he did that for you and I. But Jesus, man, he, he ain't like, he, he's not like some cosmic killjoy, right? Where he just wants to rain on your fun parade. Many people assume that's what Jesus is all about. In fact, we know that Jesus went around in two and a half years in, first, in this first century world, and he's throwing dinner parties. We talked about this last year, or last year. We did talk about it last year, but we also talked about it last week, how God loves to throw these big, lavish celebration parties. Because God is the one who invented joy, not the world. But what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6 is his vision of life is rooted in a vibrant sense of his Father's goodness. Rooted. I want you to hear this. Jesus was rooted. and We have to be rooted in a vibrant sense 
that our Father in heaven, please hear me, is good. He's good. In fact, flourishing, peace, joy, hope, grace is inextricably connected to a vibrant understanding that your God loves you. That your Father in heaven is good. That Jesus tells us, according to one New Testament scholar in Matthew chapter 6, is as Christians, prioritizing uh, the kingdom of God means we have to learn to live in the presence of a loving Father. That's what Matthew 6 is all about. And in doing so, we can then learn how to do everything for him. God's not far from us. God really does care for you. God knows what you're going through. He understands your lived experience. God knows the feels uh, that you're feeling this morning. God understands what's going on at work. God knows you better than you know yourself. God understands psychology, right? He understands how black holes work and supernovas work. He's the one who constructed the space-time universe out of ex nihilo or nothing. He's the one who invented platypuses. Come on, that's pretty inventive. So I think he's someone that you can trust. And if you can prioritize learning to live in the presence of a loving father, and when you realize that God's not far from you, God's not going to leave you. God's not going to forsake you. God's going to take not just a few things, but all things in your life, and he's going to move it towards his purpose for your good and for his glory. And when you live from that perspective, that's when you experience the peace of God. The problem, though, the problem that Jesus tells us, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm just excited about The problem with peace, what Jesus tells us, is the almighty dollar. He talks about, okay, this is your way into well-being. This is your way into joy. This is how you undercut worry and anxiety, low-grade fear, whatever. The problem is, is we get pulled out of this vibrant sense of our Father's goodness and love because we start to serve the almighty dollar. In fact, Jesus said that Money can turn into mammon. There's nothing wrong with money. Can I get an amen to that? Money's neither good or bad. Um, It's something that we can use for God's glory. It's something that we can use for our own glory. But money becomes uh, bad, becomes negative. It turns into a power or takes on a life of its own when we begin to serve it. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying this. Hey, just so you know, if you serve money, money's a, a bad boss. Money's going to give you orders. Uh, It's going to boss you around. Uh, It's going to try to possess you. It's going to try to tell you what to do. It's going to try to convince you that you need it uh, in order to survive. There's a power. Mammon is not just money. Uh, Mammon, what we find in Scripture, takes on a God-like characteristic. There's a shadowy power behind it. And when we serve money, money turns into a bully. Here's the thing, there's only one boss in the universe and his name is Jesus. And he's the only one who really cares about you. So what's generosity about? Generosity is fundamentally about love. Generosity is about, and Jesus tells us, it's about priorities. 
Let me just say this, David Myers, a sociologist, I've mentioned him many times before, says there's a weak correlation between income and uh, well-being or happiness. In fact, he, he argues that many people in America have big houses but broken homes. Statistically, there is an insignificant relationship or corresponding relationship between money and happiness. In fact, what you, you don't need today, you don't need prosperity to have joy. What you need is purpose. You need to discover God's purpose for your life. You don't need popularity. Come on, you don't need money. You don't need prosperity. You don't need stuff or all the circumstances to go right. What you need and what you need to prioritize is God's purpose for you. What were you born to do? What did God create you to be? And when you can discover that, you find true joy. You can't have the peace of God without prioritizing the presence of God in your life. So priorities. So again, generosity is, is all about love. Uh, generosity is about priorities. And we find another Old Testament passage. I want to read this to you. Uh, this passage is all about prioritization. It's about generosity. I'm going to spend just a few minutes um, talking about this, and then uh, we'll pray. But uh, this is uh, instructions given to the people of God, the Israelites, in the Old Testament. And essentially, this is what God is telling his people. It begins in verse 1. says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and have taken possession of it and live in it, verse 2, you shall take some of the first. Everyone say first. Take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who was in the office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God and say something like this. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. And then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place. Everyone say, he brought us. You didn't bring yourself, but he brought us into this place and gave. Everyone say gave. Gave us this land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. Verse 11, we, we close here. And you shall rejoice in the, all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. So what's going on in this passage? Uh, we have a framing uh, event happening. God is showing us how generosity works. And we have the principle of the first fruits. Now, I say this all the time, but C.S. Lewis said this, if you put first things first, you get second things thrown in. But if you take second things and you put them first things, you, you lose both first and second and third and fourth things. So this passage is all about you got to prioritize um, the kingdom 
of God in his voice and his presence. So what is the principle of the first fruits? Well, we find in verse 2, God gives instructions to all the farmers. How many farmers do we have here? Okay, we got uh, two. Okay. We'll go out. We'll put our wranglers on after the service, and we'll go combining, all right, and bucking some hay, all right? Um, I'm a part-time farmer. Anyways. Uh, farmers in the ancient world, I, I just this is for context, um, their income came from the harvest season. So they didn't know how much they would make until the end of the harvest. And so God gives instructions, I want you, before you get to the end of the harvest, I want you to give the first of your crops, whatever. Uh, so how, how would this affect char- charitable giving um, first, before the first fruits? If a farmer, um, before the instructions that God gives them, um, would receive his harvest. At the end, he would calculate and would figure out how much he made. Um, and then, once he figured out how much he made and what he could afford uh, to give, he would then make a decision to give charitably. But what we find in this passage is that God wanted his people to give the first part of the crop away before they knew what they were going to make. You depressed yet? Okay, good. What is that? Well, the, the re- I think the reason why is because um, of the thing called surplus. If that part, surplus is essentially the part that we can afford to give, in the words of one pastor, it's the part that we can afford to give without it cutting into our way of life. So if you're going to make a decision about being generous um, based on your surplus, you can afford to give a certain amount of money because you know what you've made and it's not going to cut into how you want to live your life. Uh, in, in, for, for example, um, giving from your surplus uh, would be like you can, you can wear whatever you want to wear. You can go wherever you want to go. You can go on all the vacations you want and there's nothing wrong with wearing clothes. Can I get it? Amen. Um, or getting Starbucks or go on vacation. Those are good things. God wants you to have joy, turn to your neighbor, give him a high five, say amen to that. Nothing wrong with that. But here's the thing. When we're given, when we're calculating, if you're a farmer, you're calculating your charitable giving based on what you receive at the end of the harvest, um, you're going to make a decision that's not going to affect or change the way you live. And what God is saying is, hey, guys, and this is what he's saying to his people, and I think this is what he's saying to us today. Man, I don't want you to give me your leftovers. I want you to give me your firstovers. I don't want you to give me your leftovers. I want you to give me your firstovers. I think it's important. And God gives an explanation because some of you are thinking, okay, why? God, why? Can't I just, from my surplus, figure out what I make at the end of the year and then give some money um, to people or to the church or, or whatever? Not just money, but maybe resources that God has given me. Uh, why can't I do that after I take care of all of my needs? Well, the answer is found in verse 3. God tells uh, the people, his people, that when they bring their first fruits, they have to make a declaration. And that declaration was about how God was gracious to them and brought them into the land. In fact, the reason why we give God our firstovers, not our leftovers, is because of God's grace. 
In fact, the only reason, and this is essentially what our, our mindset should be as followers of Jesus, the only reason we can get anything out of our land, our work, our life, is because of the grace of Jesus. What we find in Deuteronomy 26 is that they were supposed to make a declaration that they were slaves um, and that they were overwhelmed and that it was God who saved them with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand and that God was all powerful and they were broke, busted, and disgusted, right? They had no prayer. Uh, they were in a hopeless situation. They were living in a dehumanized um, environment, right? Slavery uh, is a tragic thing, and yet it was God who came and set them free and liberated them. It was by the grace of God. It was not through their work. It wasn't through their achievement or their status. It was simply because God was generous. So what we find in Deuteronomy 26 is that God is trying to help his people make the connection between generosity and grace, if we can connect giving with grace or generosity with grace or what we have with grace, we'll enter into God's blessing so we can be a blessing to the people in our city. Let me just say this. I hope you hear me. The reason why we're generous is because everything, everyone say everything, everything we have is a gift. And I can't wait to talk about this next week. I'm going to talk about grace and gratefulness next week as a spiritual practice. But you have to connect, in the words of one, one scholar, you have to make the connection in your mind and in your lived experience Monday through Saturday that everything you own from your body and your skin and, I don't know, your brain and your money and your house and your dog and your cats, we don't believe in cats, but whatever, right, and your goldfish and your stuff and whatever, that you don't own that. God owns that. It's all gift. Um, you, and, and we have to see ourselves not as achievers, but we have to see ourselves as people who receive the grace of God. It's not through your talents or through your work or through your, um, your health or the stuff that you have that you make something out of your life. It's through the grace of God. The reason why we give, the reason why we're generous, the reason why the early church in Acts chapter 2 was shaped by generosity, sacrificial generosity, was because they were, their hearts were filled with love. It was because they prioritized the kingdom of Jesus over everything else. And they somehow made the connection through the Holy Spirit that what they had was based on the grace of God. The heart of generosity in the kingdom of Jesus is simple. And this is what this is our mantra for the next 40 years or 50 or whatever, for the rest of eternity. We only have what we have because of the grace of God. And when you realize what you own ain't yours, then God's grace can flow through you. You see, the problem is, is when we, when we assume that, man, it's through my achievements that I made something of myself, or like it was through my hard work that I, I made all this money, right? Or it's through like just whatever, my brains, and I'm able to like write all this stuff and, and uh, create status for myself or achieve whatever I, I wanted. When we work from that assumption, what happens is we just start accumulating stuff for our own self. And what Jesus is saying is when, when that happens, 
the flow of resources, if it stops with you, God will stop that flow. In fact, uh, it's funny, uh, uh, at my parents' uh, house, they have a, just a tiny little pond in their backyard, and we just noticed that there's algae growing uh, on the pond. And uh, I don't know if you know anything about water. I don't know much about water, but uh, if there's no flow in the water, it becomes stagnant. And when water becomes stagnant, it creates a toxic environment. So there's no way I'm going to be swimming in the pond like uh, tonight, right? It probably has toxicity. I mean, if you love Roaring Springs, I'm sure you will love this pond, okay? But you need flow. Come on, you need, you need flow. If you don't have flow, water becomes stagnant, it becomes toxic. Same with the body, we talked about this. If blood doesn't flow, it clots and it stops and your body becomes sick. You see, if you take your stuff and you just think the end of your life is about accumulating stuff, what's gonna happen? The flow of resources that God wants you to direct for his purpose and for his glory and for other people will be stopped. God's not called us to be dams. God's called us to be rivers where his blessing can flow through us for the sake of his kingdom and his glory. So generosity is all about grace. It's all about love. It's all about making the presence of God priority. And when you do that, you experience true joy. But here's the last thing. What we find in Acts 2, and I close here. Acts 2, verse 45, 46, and 47. There is a fascinating link between awe and generosity. Love this. It's, as the people started being generous with their possessions, there's this wonder and awe that fills the church. It's funny, I, um, my wife and I, we were just kind of hanging out with some, some friends of ours, and uh, how many like ice cream? Okay, many of you like ice cream? Good. And so we were at this place, and uh, we're getting this, I, I got this lemon pie ice cream, it was the best ice cream ever. There was about 50, 60 people in line, it was a really big line, and uh, we were with good family friends, and this one particular friend of ours decided he wanted to pay for uh, everyone's ice cream. And uh, he didn't tell anybody, so he went secretly, paid for everybody's ice cream, came and sat down. His back was uh, against the line because he didn't want to see anybody. He didn't want anybody to know that he paid for their ice cream. I sat there. It was kind of like my lab experiment, right? I just kind of wanted to see what's going to happen to this line. And so what happened is you got 50, 60 people coming up. They're giving their order. Uh, they're getting ice cream. And then I loved it. The, the people that were working at the ice cream shop then told them that their ice cream was paid for. I can't tell you. How many times I saw wonder and awe and startledness on the, face, on the faces of these people. I saw three people leave with tears in their eyes. And I sat there. My friend doesn't even know what's going on. Just through this act of generosity, I saw person after person after person after person whose heart was open to wonder Here's the thing, we didn't, and I felt like the Holy Spirit told me that you could take this for what it is, but I think 2 Corinthians chapter 9 backs up what I'm about to say, right? So this is an opinion. It's through our thanksgiving that God is given glory. It's through our thanksgiving that the hearts of people, or through our, our generosity, that the hearts of people are open to truth and wonder. And I felt like the Holy Spirit told me as I, I'm watching the faces of these people, 
$5 for ice cream. And they're leaving with wonder and hope. I feel like the Holy Spirit told me it's through that act of generosity that their hearts are now open to the possibility of goodness. So what's like through generosity, I mean, my friend, he didn't preach Jesus, but he did. He like, it's just like a, study, a steady little nudge. He just kind of like nudged these people and their hearts towards the goodness of the Father. And I saw people, I knew, I could tell, there were some people that were having a really bad day, bad week, maybe just a bad life. And just by having their ice cream paid for, hope filled their lives. This is what I want to do in our city. I believe if we can, man, how many people do we have come to our church on a given Sunday? Let's say 1,500 people. We have two campuses. Could you imagine if at least 750 to 1,000 people collectively every single week decided, whether we have five bucks or 10 bucks or 5,000 bucks, we decided to be flow people and we decided to stay in God's love and that we prioritize the presence of Jesus over our own needs, believing that God is fully capable of taking care of our needs. And then we, we make the connection between grace and generosity. And we started practicing being generous with people in our city. What could God do with our acts of generosity? God would bring hope. God would bring life. I am convinced. I am convinced a move of God is inextricably tethered to the generosity of his people. I don't think we could ever have a move of God without generous people. Because generosity is the soul of the kingdom of Jesus. Logan, I think Logan, you mentioned it. You came up here. Logan, how, are you still here? You left? Logan's about, remember, he's about 6'8". Uh, is he in high school? Logan, I love you, man. I loved your testimony. You got up. And I think one of the first things that you said is that you, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, you felt like God called you to this camp when someone paid for your way to camp. You knew in that moment. I love that. Before he experienced God at camp, he knew in his soul, in his soul, when someone paid for his camp, that man, God is good. So man, if Oprah can lavish gifts on people, if Ellen can lavish gifts on people, I think the church should perfect the art of lavishing good gifts in generous ways to the people in our city. So Chris, why do we give? Well, because we don't own anything. We give because, man, we shouldn't even be here. We give because God has been so gracious. We give because he rescued us. He, we, we, we give because he set us free from depression and despair and fear and addictions. We give because we have salvation. We give because new creation has been launched in Jesus. We give because Jesus did a loop-de-doo to death itself when we didn't even deserve it. Come on, people. We give because of God's grace. We give. We give, we give, we give because our Father in heaven is good. He 
He's good. He's good. He's good. He's good. He's good. He's not far. He's not indifferent. You don't, we, we, we don't serve a God who doesn't care about our needs and our issues. We serve a God who knows us so well. A good father. A good father who wants to take care of every single need. So we give generously from that assumption. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.